0: Chapter Four of Daniel Boone by Reuben Gold Thwaites. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. Daniel Boone by Reuben Gold Thwaites, Chapter Four, Red Man Against White Man. The borderers in the Valley of Virginia and on the Western Highlands of the Carolinas were largely engaged in raising horses cattle sheep and hogs which grazed at will upon the broad slopes of the eastern foothills of the alleghanies most of them being in as wild a state as the great roving herds now to be seen upon the semi-arid plains of the far west indeed there are some strong points of resemblance between the life of the frontier herdsmen of the middle of the eighteenth century and that of the cow ranchers of our own day although the most primitive conditions now existing would have seemed princely to daniel boone the annual round-up the branding of young stock the sometimes deadly disputes between herdsmen and the autumnal drive to market are features in common with the settlement of the valleys and the steady increase in the herds it was necessary each season to find new pastures thus the herdsmen pushed farther and farther into the wilderness to the south and west and actually crossed the mountains at many points even before the arrival of the boons the bryans had frequently toward the end of summer as the lower pastures thinned driven their stock to a distance of sixty and seventy miles to green valleys lying between the western buttresses of the mountain wall this gradual pressure upon the hunting-grounds of the cherokees and the catawbas was not unnoticed by the tribesmen there had long been heard deep mutterings especially by the former who were well disposed toward the ever-meddling french but until the year of daniel boone's wedding the southern frontiers had not known an indian uprising the year previous seventeen fifty five the cherokees had given reluctant permission to the whites to build two posts in their country for the protection of the frontiers against the french who, with their Indian allies, were continually active against the New York, Pennsylvania, and Virginia frontiers, and were known to be attempting the corruption of the southern Indians. Fort Prince George was accordingly erected upon the Savannah River, and Fort Loudon upon the Tennessee. In 1756 Fort Dobbs was constructed a short distance south of the South Fork of the Yadkin these three centers of refuge were upon the extreme southwestern borders of the english colonies these forts of the american border would have proved slight defenses in the presence of an enemy armed with even the lightest artillery but were generally sufficient to withstand a foe possessing only muskets and rifles fort dobbs was an oblong space forty-three by fifty-three feet girt by walls about twelve feet high, consisting of double rows of logs standing on end. Earth dug from the ditch which surrounded the fort was piled against the feet of these palisades, inside and out, to steady them. They were fastened to one another by wooden pins, and their tops were sharpened so as to impede those who might seek to climb over. At the angles of the stockade were blockhouses three stories high, each story projecting about eighteen inches beyond the one beneath. There were openings in the floors of the two upper stories to enable the defenders to fire down upon an enemy which sought to enter below. Along the inside of one, or perhaps two, of the four walls of the stockade was a range of cabins, or rather one long cabin with log partitions, with the slope of the roof turned inward to the square, thus furnished a platform for the garrison who, protected by the rampart of pointed logs, could fire into the attacking party. Other platforms were bracketed against the walls, not backed by cabins. There was a large double gate made of thick slabs and so situated as to be guarded by the blockhouses on either corner. This was the main entrance, but another and smaller gate furnished a rear exit to and entrance from the spring hard by. Blockhouses, cabins, and walls were all amply provided with portholes. Fort Dobbs had capacity for a hundred men at arms to fire at one volley. Destructive fusillades could be maintained from within, and everywhere the walls were bulletproof. But good marksmen in the attacking force could work great havoc by firing through the portholes, and thus quietly picking off those who chanced to be in range. Fortunately for the whites, few Indians became so expert at this upon the arrival of breathless messengers bringing news of the approach of hostile indians the men women and children of a wide district would flock into such a fort as this i well remember says dr dudridge in his notes on virginia that when a little boy the family were sometimes waked up in the dead of night by an express with a report that the indians were at hand the express came softly to the door or back window and by gentle tapping waked the family This was easily done, as an habitual fear made us ever watchful and sensible to the slightest alarm. The whole family were instantly in motion. My father seized his gun and other implements of war. My stepmother waked up and dressed the children as well as she could, and being myself the oldest of the children, I had to take my share of the burthens to be carried to the fort. There was no possibility of getting a horse in the night to aid us in removing to the fort besides the little children we caught up what articles of clothing and provisions we could get hold of in the dark for we durst not light a candle or even stir the fire all this was done with the utmost despatch and the silence of death the greatest care was taken not to awaken the youngest child to the rest it was enough to say indian and not a whimper was heard afterwards thus it often happened that the whole number of families belonging to a fort who were in the evening at their homes were all in their little fortress before the dawn of the next morning in the course of the succeeding day their household furniture was brought in by parties of the men under arms the large public frontier forts such as we have described did not house all of the backwoodsmen there were some who either because of great distance or other reasons erected their own private defences or in many cases several isolated families united in such a structure often these were but single blockhouses with a few outlying cabins it was difficult to induce some of the more venturesome folk to enter the forts unless indians were actually in the settlement they took great risks in order to care for their crops and stock until the last moment and soon tiring of the monotony of life within the fort cabins would often leave the refuge before the danger was really over such families reports dudridge gave no small amount of trouble by creating frequent necessities of sending runners to warn them of their danger and sometimes parties of our men to protect them during their removal for the first few years fort dobbs was but little used there was however much uneasiness The year 1757 had, all along the line, been disastrous to English arms in the north, and the Cherokees became increasingly insolent. The next year they committed several deadly assaults in the Valley of Virginia, but themselves suffered greatly in return. The French, at last driven from Fort Duquesne, Pittsburgh, had retreated down the Ohio River to Fort Massac in southern Illinois, and sent their emissaries far and near to stir up the Indians west of the mountains. The following April, 1759, the Atkin and Catawba valleys were raided by the Cherokees with the usual results of ruined crops, burned farm buildings, and murdered households, Let a few of the borderers being carried off as prisoners into the Indian country. They are generally to suffer either slavery or slow death from the most horrid forms of torture. The Catawbas, meanwhile, remained faithful to their white friends. Until this outbreak of the Carolinas had prospered greatly, hundreds of settlers had poured in from the more exposed northern valleys, and the western uplands were now rapidly becoming dotted over with clearings and log cabins. The Indian forays at once created a general panic throughout this region, heretofore considered safe most of the atkin families together with english fur traders who hurried in from the woods huddled within the walls either of fort dobbs or of small neighborhood forts hastily constructed but many others in their fright fled with all their possessions to settlements on or near the atlantic coast among the latter were old squire boone and his wife Daniel and Rebecca, with their two sons, and several other families of Bryans and Boons, although some of both names preferred to remain at Fort Dobbs. The fugitives scattered to various parts of Virginia and Maryland, Squire going to Georgetown, now in the District of Columbia, where he lived for three years and then returned to the Yadkin, while Daniel's family went in their two-horse wagon to Culpeper County in eastern Virginia. The settlers there employed him with his wagon in hauling tobacco to Fredericksburg, the nearest market town. The April forays created almost as much consternation at Charleston as on the Yadkin. Governor Littleton of South Carolina sent out 1,500 men to overcome the Cherokees, who now pretended to be grieved at the acts of their young hotbloods and patched up a peace. Fur traders, eager to renew their profitable barter, hastened back into the western forests, but very soon their confidence was shattered, for the Indians again dug up the tomahawk. Their war parties infested every road and trail. Most of the traders, with trains of pack horses to carry their goods and furs, fell an easy prey to their forest customers, and Forts Loudon, Dobbs, and Prince George were besieged by january seventeen sixty the entire southwest border was once more a scene of carnage captain waddell our old friend of braddock's campaign commanded at fort dobbs with several bryans and boons in his little garrison here the cherokees were repulsed with great loss at fort prince george the country round about was sadly harried by the enemy who finally withdrew fort Loudon, however had one of the saddest experiences in the thrilling annals of the frontier in april general amherst of the british army sent colonel montgomery against the cherokees with a formidable column composed of twelve hundred regular troops among them six hundred kilted highlanders to whom were attached seven hundred carolina backwoods rangers under waddell with some catawba allies They laid waste with fire and sword all the Cherokee villages on the Kiowie and Tennessee rivers, including the growing crops and magazines of corn. The soldiers killed seventy Indians, captured forty prisoners, and reduced the greater part of the tribe to the verge of starvation. The Cherokees were good fighters, and soon had their revenge. On the morning of the 27th of June, the Army was proceeding along a rough road on the southern bank of the Little Tennessee, where on one side is a sheer descent to the stream, on the other a lofty cliff. Here it was ambuscaded by over 600 savage warriors under the noted chief, Sillowy. In the course of an engagement lasting several hours, the whites lost 20 killed and 60 wounded, and the Cherokee casualties were perhaps greater. Montgomery desperately beat his way to a level tract, but in the night hastily withdrew, and did not stop until he reached Charleston. Despite the entreaties of the assembly, he at once retired to the north with his little army and left the frontiers of Carolina open to the assaults of the merciless foe. The siege of Fort Loudon was now pushed by the Cherokees with vigor. It had already withstood several desperate and protracted assaults, but the garrison contrived to exist for several months almost wholly upon the active sympathy of several Indian women who were married to frontiersmen, shut up within the walls. The dusky wives frequently contrived to smuggle food into the fort despite the protests of the Indian leaders. Women, however, despite popular notions to the contrary, have a powerful influence in Indian camps, and they but laughed the chiefs to scorn, saying that they would suffer death rather than refuse assistance to their white husbands. This relief, however, furnished but a precarious existence. Receiving no help from the settlements, which were cut off from communication with them, and weak from irregular food, the garrison finally surrendered on promise of a safe conduct to their fellows in the east. Early in the morning of August 9th they marched out, men, women, and children to the number of several hundred, leaving behind them their cannon, ammunition, and spare arms the next day upon their sorry march they were set upon by a bloodthirsty mob of seven hundred cherokees many were killed outright others surrendered merely to meet torture and death finally after several hours of horror a friendly chief succeeded by browbeating his people and by subterfuge in saving the lives of about two hundred persons who in due time and after great suffering reached the relief party which had for several months been making its way thither from virginia but it had been delayed by storms and high water in the mountain streams and was now seeking needed rest in a camp at the head of the holston it is recorded that during the heart-rending melee several other indians risked their lives for white friends performing deeds of heroism, which deserve to be remembered. Although New France was now tottering to its fall, the French officers at Fort Massac still continued with their limited resources to keep alive the Cherokee war spirit. French outrages occurred throughout the autumn and early winter of 1760. At nearly all of the forts, large and small, skirmishes took place, some of these giving occasion for exhibitions of rare enterprise and courage on the part of the garrisons women and men alike during the winter the governors of virginia north carolina and south carolina agreed upon a joint campaign against the hostiles the southern column comprising twenty six hundred men chiefly highlanders was under lieutenant colonel james grant Starting early in June, they carried with them seven hundred pack-horses, four hundred head of cattle, and a large train of baggage and supplies. Their route from Fort Prince George to the lower and middle Cherokee towns on the Little Tennessee lay through a rough, mountainous country. High water, storms, intensely warm weather, the lack of tents, and bruises from rocks and briars caused the troops to suffer greatly. After heavy losses from ambuscades in narrow defiles, they finally reached their destination and spent a month in burning and ravaging fifteen or more large villages and fourteen hundred acres of growing corn, and in driving five thousand men, women, and children into the hills to starve. Wrote one of the pious participators in this terrible work of devastation, heaven has blessed us with the greatest success we have finished our business as completely as the most sanguine of us could have wished the cherokees completely crushed humbly begged for peace which was granted upon liberal terms and proved to be permanent the northern column was composed of backwoodsmen from virginia and north carolina under colonel william byrd an experienced campaigner Byrd was much hampered for both men and supplies, and accomplished little. He appears to have largely spent his time in making roads and building blockhouses, laborious methods, ill-fitted for Indian warfare, and loudly criticized by Waddell, who joined him with a regiment of 500 North Carolinians, among whom was Daniel Boone, now returned to the Adkin. Waddell and Boone had experienced the folly of this sort of thing in Braddock's ill-fated campaign as a result of dissatisfaction byrd resigned and colonel stephen succeeded him the force now composed of about twelve hundred men pushed on to the long island of halston river where they were met by four hundred cherokees who brought to their knees by grant likewise sought peace from stephen articles were accordingly signed on the nineteenth of november The North Carolina men returned home, but a portion of the Virginia regiment remained as a winter garrison for Fort Robinson, as a new fort at Long Island was called. Now that the Adkin region has, after its sad experience, been blessed with a promise of peace, we may well pause, briefly, to consider the ethics of border warfare. This life history will, to its close have much to do with indian forays and white reprisals and it is well that we should consider them dispassionately the cherokees were conducting a warfare in defence of their villages fields and hunting grounds which were being rapidly destroyed by the inrush of white settlers who seemed to think that the indians had no rights worth consideration encouraged by the french who deemed the english intruders on lands which they had first explored the american aborigines seriously thought that they might stem the tide of english settlement it was impossible that they should win for civilization has in such cases ever triumphed over savagery but that they should make the attempt was to be expected from a high-spirited race trained to war We can but sympathize with and honor them for making their several stout stands against the European wave, which was, ultimately, to sweep them from their native land. King Philip, Opecancano, Pontiac, Tecumseh, Red Jacket, Sitting Bull, Captain Jack, were types of successive leaders who, at various stages of our growth westward, have stood as bravely as any Spartan hero to contest our all-conquering advance it is a time-honoured custom of historians of the frontier to consider indians as all wrong and whites as all right and that of course was the opinion of the borderers themselves of daniel boone and all the men of his day but we are now far enough removed from these events and the fierce passions they engendered to see them more clearly the indian was a savage and fought like a savage cruel bloodthirsty unrelenting treacherous seldom a respecter of childhood of age or of women but one cannot read closely the chronicles of border warfare without discovering that civilized men at times could in fighting savages descend quite as low in the scale as they in bloodthirstiness and treachery some of the most atrocious acts in the pioneer history of kentucky and the middle west were performed by whites and some of the most christian-like deeds There were many such on both sides, were those of painted savages. It is needless to blame either of the contending races. Their conflict was inevitable. The frontiersman was generally unlettered and used without ceremony to overcoming the obstacles which nature set in his path. One more patient could not have tamed the wilderness as quickly as he his children often rose to high positions as scholars statesmen and diplomats but he himself was a diamond in the rough and not accustomed to nice ethical distinctions to his mind the indian was an inferior being if not a child of satan he was not making the best use of the soil his customs and habits of thought were such as to repel the british mind however much they may have attracted the french the tribesmen whom the pioneer could not and would not understand, stood in his way, hence must be made to go or to die in his tracks. When the savage, quick to resentment, struck back, the turbulent passions of the overbearing white were aroused, and with compound interest he repaid the blow, upon the theory that the devil must be fought with fire. The borderer not seldom adopted methods of reprisal that outdid the savage in brutality. The red man fighting, after his own wild standards, for all that he held most dear, and the white man, who brooks no opposition from an inferior race, hitting back with a fury sometimes increased by fear-such in brief is the blood-stained history of the American border. End of chapter four. Recording by William Tomko.